I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Remy Adekoya, an associate lecturer at the University of York and the author of a great new book, It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth, How the Economics of Race Really Works. Welcome to the podcast, Remy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question um, that I'd like to ask is, what made you want to write the book in the first place? So I grew up in Nigeria. Um, I was born to a Nigerian father and a Polish mother. Uh, so I lived in Lagos for the first 17 years of my life. I went to primary and secondary school in Nigeria. And of course, as a mixed race person in Nigeria, I sort of, you know, thought, you know, and, you know, the son of a, a white mother in Nigeria, I sort of, you know, thought about race, you know, on and off. But it wasn't really a major, major thing, you know, I, I kept thinking about um, uh, throughout my childhood. But it is something that was there sort of, you know, at the back of my mind because of that family background which I had. And so I sort of wondered uh, from a young age, you know, why is it exactly that um, white people always seem to have the upper hand mm-hmm. over us, you know, Africans? You know, why are they richer? You know, why do they have more power? Why were they able to colonize us? You know, wh- why could all these things just happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and why haven't they changed? You know, why is it that uh, Europe still seems to have a huge sort of, you know, power advantage, you know, over Africa and over other people in the world? So these are things I thought about sort of, you know, on and off. Then after I finished secondary school in Lagos, I went to live in Warsaw, my mother's and my homeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I lived in Poland for many years. I went to university there and I worked there. And there, you know, I was sort of brought face to face with, you know, the reality of, of, of racism really and of, you know, racial hierarchies and sort of, you know, people looking at me um, from way, way above for the fact that I came from Africa. And I started, you know, learning, you know, you know why is this? You know, I had conversations with people, you know, um, uh, more pleasant or less pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, why is it exactly that you guys look down on us? Why is it that, you, you know, people look down on Africa here and all that? And, you know, and I had, you know, various, you know, answers to that, uh, to that question. And then I moved to Britain and... Uh, 2015, so eight years ago, uh, and here again, I came obviously into contact um, with race, and here race is obviously a big thing in because this is a this is the first multiracial society I've lived in. So Nigeria, basically all black, Poland was basically all white, and this is the first sort of multiracial society I've lived in. So the race debate is really a thing here, and I've been listening to it for the past eight years, you know, trying to participate in it, um, when I could, but I always felt, you know, that. Some of these answers, some of these key questions were missing. Uh, and so, yes, fine. You know, there's talk about, okay, how did, you know, this racial hierarchies we talk about today, you know, how did they emerge? And, you know, and the racial hierarchies are really what seem to upset a lot of people. Mm. That feeling that we still seem to live in a world in which um, white people are positioned at the top, black people are positioned at the bottom and everyone else somewhere in between. And so the question, of course, is why? And, you know, the, the most common answers which are given here, especially here in, in the UK race debate and in the US too, is, you know, people will go back, people say, okay, slavery, transatlantic slave trade. Then people will talk about colonialism, and then people will talk about the ideology of white supremacy. So this is the holy trinity of the race debate. These are the three pillars around which the race debate um, operates. And all the answers, you know, people say essentially come from there. And I say, okay, fine. Uh, to a large extent, this even explains how this now informal racial hierarchy we talk about emerged. 
-hmm. but it doesn't explain what sustains it. Why does it continue? So many people complain about it. There have been countless moral arguments leveled against it, you know, super eloquent moral arguments, super persuasive moral arguments, you know. I mean, you can't say it better than Dr. Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech. I mean, I think anybody that listens to that will mm -hmm. generally agree, you know, yes, this is the way it should be in the sense of people should be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. But we've heard all these argue, moral arguments. They're still being leveled today. Um, there's a general consensus that the idea of racial hierarchies is wrong. Most people, I think, would acknowledge that it's wrong, including most white people, I think, mm. would acknowledge that it's wrong. So what exactly is going on here? Why does it still continue? And that's the question which I am most interested in because, you know, what sustains the order and the hierarchy is what is important for today and for tomorrow. But if we don't understand what sustains it, we're definitely not going to change it. So then in a hundred years' time, we'll still be talking about the same problems. In a hundred years' time, we'll still be talking about a racial hierarchy and still be talking about colonialism and slavery, you know. Yeah. And, and and that's why I really wanted to um, to write the book to answer that key question of what exactly sustains this racial order we keep talking about today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And w one of the things I find interesting, um, you open the book uh, with a study from South Africa, which saw um, children aged between four to nine presented with different pictures of um, white, mixed-raced and black people. And the majority of the children said that they preferred the image of the white people. And you go on to explain um, in, in the introduction how the evidence from that study seemed to indicate that the reason for the preference uh, was due to an association with, with wealth and, and group status. To yeah. what extent do you feel that this case study shows that children, even at a relatively young age, are aware of the distinctions between having money and not having it, having a particular status and not having it. So that study and various other studies in other countries, I mean, which I also mentioned okay. in the book, have shown that generally speaking, children seem to have a preference for higher status groups in their society. Mm -hmm. And it now depends, you know, which are the groups in their society which are considered, you know, high status. And, and, and studies in Taiwan have showed this and studies in the US have shown this and studies in other parts of the world you know, have shown that children generally seem to have a preference. They gravitate towards kids who seem to be from higher status groups without probably even thinking about it much or without thinking about it at all. And so the, 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 the authors of the study then said, okay, so the question now is how do children intuit which groups are higher status and which groups are lower status? That now becomes the key question. Um, and what um, uh, many um, have suggested who are doing who, who do these who do these surveys around children is that a lot of it will tend to boil down to wealth mm. will tend to boil down to the groups that seem to have a lot and this is of course you know in, in, in the world of a child you know who is this that's the kid that has the most toys the kid that has the shiniest toys the kid that has the xbox yeah the kid mm. that has you know all the other toys you know children love to play with you know, that's how it starts yeah. And, and children see or intuit rather uh, or observe that, you know, they seem to connect, you know, it seems people from, you know, who look like this, you know, who have this skin color or look uh, look that other way or from this group seem to have much more of this. Yeah. Seem yeah. to have the nicer toys, seem to live in the nicer houses. Their parents seem to have the nicer cars. They seem to have the nicer clothes, you know. Yeah. And, you know, wealth is attractive. You know, we talk about wealth and um, very often, you know, in a negative light. And I definitely try to talk in, in the book, show how it sustains hierarchies. Mm -hmm. But wealth purchases a lot of attractive things, a lot of aesthetically pleasing things. And, you know, the, the, the nice house, the nice car, the, the, the super toy, etc. 
these are the possessions which wealth can possess, which wealth can offer you that kids see and are like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, I wish I had that. Or, oh, that kid who has that is cool. And, you know, and that's how it starts from that very young age. And then, of course, the older we get, you know, when you become a teenager, you know, then it becomes, you know, money can be even more important. Yeah, you know, who has money to, you know, take girls out on dates, who mm-hmm. has the cooler clothes, who can afford designer clothes, you know. And then it progresses and then we become adults. And then it's about, you know, who, who can buy the bigger house or has the bigger car, you know, or has more money, etc. And so wealth really here is only important in so much as it is what can give status or deny status in the capitalist world that we live in. Because if we lived in a different world, if we lived in a world which perhaps, you know, didn't run on money, but on something else, I don't know what, then probably status would would derive from something else. Just like, you know, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, status derived from other things, you know. Mm. Who were the people who who had status in societies here in the UK um, eight, nine hundred years ago? You know, perhaps the, the, the strongest soldiers, the warriors, mm. yeah? They were mm. the people other people looked up to, but they were the people who could really decide things, mm. you know. Today, we live in a world where, you know, you don't have to have big muscles and be able to, you know, kill 200 people on the battlefield to have status. Mm. What you need to have is money, because money enables you to do things, to make things happen, to, you know, create companies, employ people change people's lives, you know. Mm. There's really few things we can think about in the world today in, like I say, that capitalist reality we live in today and that has the power to change people's lives, to give people agency or to deny agency as money does. And when I talk about a capitalist reality, it's not particularly from some kind of, you know, mega anti-capitalist and sentiment. It's simply a statement of fact. I'm simply saying yeah. that's the kind of world we live in today. One thing that I found that was interesting um, reading the introduction of the book is it reminded me of a part in um, Trevor Noah's autobiography in which he said that he felt, obviously growing up um, during a path, that he felt that he felt that he made uh, like a um, a choice between whether he um, you know played with uh, black kids or, or whether he played with mixed race kids. And I just wondered, how much do you think there is still in South Africa, an emotional and psychological stain as a result of apartheid. Do you think that that's still something that younger generations who've grown up post-apartheid feel resonances of, or do you think that it's something that is not as uh, as much in the forefront of the minds of younger South Africans than it may be those who actually who lived through apartheid? So it, um, I have family um, who live in South Africa, um, Nigerian family, but they live in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 it wouldn't be on the minds of people as much as it was, you know, 30, 40 years yeah, ago, yeah. you know, in the terms of apartheid. Um, uh, but it is still in the minds of the people, especially when we connect it to that wealth thing. Because hmm. when people complain today about, you know, um, what's going on in South Africa and about yeah. the hierarchies in South Africa, what they're really complaining about is not the in color of, you know, uh, white people per se, what they're complaining about is the fact that, oh, it's still white people who control most of the money. Mm. That's what the complaint is about. Mm. Yeah. When, yeah. When, when, when the blacks are Africans complain about it, they say, oh, you know, the whites still have all the land. They still have all the best land. They still have a lot of the money. They still dominate a lot of the economy. You know, that's what the complaint is about. Mm. And that's because, you know, people intuit also that, you know, that's what really keeps them above us. Yeah. The fact that, you know, they can afford all these things. They can afford these beautiful houses. They can afford to send their kids to good schools. They can afford to send their kids to private hospitals. 
and things like that. And we can't afford that. You know, that's what the problem is, sort of not in the fact that they are white per se. Yeah. You know, I mean, if they were white and poor, nobody would really care. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I, I think w- w- another thing that you that you mentioned in the book that I found really interesting is the um, uh, the, the global income definition, according to the World Bank of middle class, that is about $1,000 a month or um, $12,500 a year. And I think when you say that to, if you said that to people in the West, I think as as you say, they would be quite surprised in how it seems modest towards a lot of w- wages in the West. Do you think that that particular statistic helps to contextualise the levels of economic inequality between the West and the rest of the world? Because I mean, like a thousand dollars a month, people in in the West will often be paying that just on, say, renting um, somewhere that mm-hmm. they live alone, let alone any, you know bills and food and, and along the things. Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I, and and, and I, 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 I cited it because exactly that here in the West, um, uh, you know, $1,000 would seem a very modest income. And like you say, most people would think it's, you know, almost quote unquote nothing. Yeah. You know, and that only goes to show just what kind of wealth disparities we are dealing with in a global context. Because as I pointed out there, just 2% of people in Africa have incomes exceeding $1,000 a month, just 2%, just one in 50. And the same goes for South Asia. So Africa is where 90% of the black people in this world live. South Asia is where most of the brown people in this Mm. world live. Yeah. And in South Asia to just 2% of the population there have incomes exceeding $1,000. In Europe as a continent, 90% of the population have incomes exceeding $1,000 a month. And um, in the US, it's, um, no, sorry, in, in Europe, I think it's 80%, mm-hmm. and in North America, it's 90%. And so so that's seen as not much here. And of course, life is more expensive here. Of course, the cost of living is high, et cetera. But those are all the consequences of living in an affluent society. Mm. Okay? Those are all the consequences of living in an affluent society and, and simply show how the standards of living, you know, vary vastly between, between peoples and between continents. And like I say, the, the, the problem in this is of that correlation that now exists between where wealth is mm. and skin color. You know, that it, it's the correlation that matters because of the fact that at the end of the day, the West is a predominantly white place. And like I say, 90% of black people live in Africa. So if there are regions of the world that are incredibly poor, definitely in comparison to regions of the world that are much richer, and there is a direct correlation between race there and skin color, mm. then it's no surprise that we have the kind of hierarchies we're talking about, that we have these this racial hierarchies, that there are people who are instinctively often, not always, of course, often looked down on. And mm. conversely, that there are people who are often looked up to. Because like I also, you know, try to show in the book, the reason why um, a white person, you know, walks into a, a restaurant in Kenya or in, or in Nigeria and they will tend to be treated very nicely, perhaps even more so than others who come in there. It's not just because, oh, a white man has walked into this restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Because, oh, a white man has walked into this and he's probably got some good money in his pocket mm. and can probably spend quite a bit in this restaurant because of that instinctive association of whiteness with wealth. Yeah. You know, that is why that person will be treated like that. And you see, when that person walks into the restaurant, that white person walks into a restaurant in Nairobi or in Lagos, and the Kenyan waiter or the Nigerian waiter, you know, is immediately like very nice to them. And then a Nigerian is walking behind or a Kenyan is walking behind and they think they may not get that same treatment. They're immediately annoyed. They're immediately offended. 
they're immediately like, hey, what's going on here? Even in my own country, the white people are treated better than us, you know. And, yeah. but, and then, but people will immediately connect it. Oh, you know, it, it's race, it, you know, it's not racism because we're talking about Nigerian and Kenyan waiters. Yeah. We're talking about who they think matters in this world, who they think is important. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I, th I think that that really feeds into the point that you make regarding respect and, and, and you discuss um, your own experiences in Poland. And I, one of the lines that really struck me in that chapter was when you said that respect is not something you can legislate or force yeah. people to feel. I mean, given that that is the case, do you think that this is something that, in terms of the way that particularly politicians, particularly populist politicians, act around issues like to do with race and immigration and that kind of thing, even though it's not something you can legislate, it's something that needs to be held more account in the particular populist politicians who espouse kind of negative rhetoric around that in order that they don't set the tone of discussion about, you know, issues of, of, of respect and race. Um, are you asking whether I think um, it's important that we try to curtail um, right-wing populist politicians who might open it who might be spouting rhetoric that's openly disrespectful yes. of, say, racial minorities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, yes. Look, we have to do what we can with the tools we have, okay? Um, one thing I've always uh, liked about, about Britain is that there is a clear desire here among the majority to run a civilized society. And when I say civilized society, I mean a society in which, broadly speaking, um, everyone is, you know, treated generally fairly and generally respectfully, okay? Mm -hmm. So that commitment is there. This is not a given, and this is not something you find in every society in the world, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so that is there. That's something you can build on. And so taking from that, we, of course, try to do what we can, you know, deliver all the moral arguments which we can about how people need, need to be treated well and treated respectfully and treated equally, irrespective of their skin color or irrespective, you know, how much money they may have or what they are what their occupational status is. Mm -hmm. So we need to definitely try to do that as much as we can. What I am saying is that ultimately that is not going to really solve the issue. It's simply not going to. Yeah. Because just the same way we can make the argument and say, oh, um, a, a, a bus driver in the UK should not be treated any... Let's take away race now. Yeah. And we say a bus driver in the UK should not be treated any less respectfully or seen as having less status than the prime minister or than a millionaire because he's a human being. Mm -hmm. Now, we can say that, of course, and morally, we can agree that that is the way it should be. But surely there is no one here who honestly believes that we're going to get to a place where the prime minister is not going to enjoy more status than a bus driver in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. That is simply not going to happen, Okay. Um, and so what I'm saying is that when we think racial terms, even though we need to do everything we can to, you know, deliver the moral arguments about how people need to be treated fairly and, and, and ensure they are as much as we can by law, we are not going to get there without addressing the material issues and the fact that human beings are hierarchical creatures. We are organizing into hierarchies. All societies are organized into various forms of hierarchies. There's gender hierarchies, there's age hierarchies. In yeah. every society, older people have more power than younger people, mm -hmm. especially than children under the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we, we believe that's the way, you know, that, that's normal, so to speak. That's how, that's how it's seen. There's gender hierarchies, 
You might have religious hierarchies in some societies where, you know, people who are from the dominant religion generally have more status than people from the minority religions. You have ethnic hierarchies. You have occupational hierarchies. Look, even this meritocracy, which we talk about, a meritocracy is not a society of equal. It's packaged that way. Yeah. But that's not what it is. A meritocracy is a competence-based hierarchy. It's a society that is structured along the idea that those who prove themselves based on some criteria object to be more competent than others should rise to the top of society. They should be the ones running things, yeah. while those deemed less competent should be in the lower spheres of society. Now, of course, when we are selling meritocracies, we don't mention the second part of that argument yeah. because that wouldn't be helpful. So we mentioned the anyone can rise to the top part. But the truth is, not everyone is ever going to rise to the top, mm. no matter how fair you make things. Mm. Okay? So even in a meritocracy, which if, if, if you really look at, if you really strip down all the arguments of the right and left on race, let's take aside the, the, the radicals, let's take mm-hmm. yeah. the center, left and right. What they're really both arguing for is a meritocracy. That we should live in a society here in Britain where uh, the, the best, quote unquote, the most competent, mm-hmm. can rise to the top, irrespective skin color, irrespective gender, irrespective uh, physical disabilities, etc., yeah. etc. Okay, but that is still espousing hierarchy, mm-hmm. yeah. just based on competence, and we we see that as fair. And there's many sort of you know good arguments, so to speak, for meritocracies. Yeah, probably mm-hmm. the principal one for me being that they are the most effective, or they have been shown as the most effective in creating general collective wealth for the, for the whole society, yeah? We definitely don't want to be in a society where uh, that is run by, say, the least cleverest of us, yeah? Let's put yeah. it that way. So there's many arguments for that, but we should not pretend that a meritocracy is not a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so the way it works, the way it worked in humanity um, uh, since, you know, recorded history and even pre-recorded history is that human beings have organized themselves into various hierarchies. And that is how they function, even though many of the hierarchies are implicit. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that in the capitalist world which we live in, it is groups that have more collective wealth and thus have more agency, are able to do more, are able to decide, are able to determine more, that will at the end of the day be the high state of groups. And the groups that have less, especially far less, especially the differences are drastic. If the differences are not very drastic, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Like, when Connor just ran those studies on, on the children, which, which I had in the book, what they found out is that what really matters is if the wealth, the perception of wealth differences between groups are that these differences are huge or yeah. not necessarily that big. Where the children perceive that, you know, it's not that much of a difference. Yeah, you know, this group, you know, the average person there earns, you know, 2,000 pounds. And in that group, it's 2,500. Then it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Where it makes a difference is when you have 2,500 and 200. Mm. That's where that's where it makes a difference. And so in that bigger picture also, if we're talking about racial groups, uh, is the drasticity, it's probably not such a word, the extremity of the wealth gap that really makes these things visible and that really gives, you know, white folk, broadly speaking, um, that much higher status in this world, yeah. while black folk having X times um, uh, and less are perceived as a much lower status group. Even yeah. though, you know, people might say this, people might not say this, but at the end of the day, that's how it's seen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just wondering, because you, you, you make the point very well, 
In terms of the disparity between, say, income of like 2,000 or 2,500, do you think that part of the issue when people are, you know, talking about, say, um, poverty in um, the country that they live in uh, as compared to global poverty is that sometimes people are thinking about the um, income um, differences just in terms of what's happening in their um, own country and not thinking about how the the difference in terms of um, global income. And so sometimes when we're discussing um, poverty in particular countries and, and wealth inequality and, and, and that kind of thing, it can sometimes get bogged down in just talking about the, the individual country. So, for example, in the UK, rather than placing the income and, and, and wealth inequality that exists in the UK in a wider global context, that it is obviously exists in the UK, but mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't be you know viewed in the same way as um, wealth inequality, say, between someone in the UK and someone um, living in Nigeria, for example. 100%. Um, I read somewhere um, uh, uh, someone once wrote, and this is perhaps a, a slight, but only a slight exaggeration, uh, that the poorest person in Britain is better off than most people in Africa. Mm. And that is just a slight exaggeration. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way it is at the end of the day. And of course, um, uh, being uh, uh, national creatures, so to speak, mm-hmm. And people who generally tend to, you know, worry most about, you know, ourselves, our families, those around us, and, and yeah. most those in our country, you know, that's simply the way we are. I'm not saying this is just the way British people are. Yeah, yeah. That's simply the way we are. And um, because of that tendency, of course, we tend to focus on what's going on in maximum in our country, you know, not even that very often, but maximum in our country. And so we say, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm struggling here. And there's these people here who are, you know, earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds and, you know, they have incomes of this and that, and I only have an income of this. And so, you know, our frame of reference, obviously, is usually to the other people in our country. And, and this is why I wanted to write a book that, you know, looked at the race context. Because also I find that the people who talk about race here, so for example, from racial minority groups, anti-racist movement, or what you want to call it, um, uh, also have very often that just British frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And and they sort of, when they try to explain why it is that black people may still be looked down on here in Britain, they sort of act as if Britain is this sort of, you know, um, island that exists independent of the rest of human reality. Uh, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It exists in a wider world. And because of the fact that race, or skin color rather, is so visible to people, and because of the fact that, you know, we've been talking about race for an old time and we use terms like black people, white people, you cannot divorce the status of blackness in Britain from the state of blackness in the world. Mm-hmm. You simply can't. Okay. Yeah. Because of the fact that A, a, a black Kenyan looks the same as a black Britain. Simplistically yeah. put, you know, in, you, I, I think you get what I'm trying to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a white Brit looks the same as a white Swede. And so, and that's what people see, okay? So when somebody sees a black person, um, you know, on the street, you know, they're not thinking, oh, oh, that's a black Brit. Um, so probably, you know, generally quite well off, but aha, that's a Somali there, or that's a Kenyan there. So mm-hmm. probably also, I'm going to treat them differently from the way I treat you. you know, at the end of the day, they see a black person. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a huge mistake, in my opinion, on the part of both British and American anti-racists to delude themselves 
that they can actually quote unquote resolve the race problem within you know British society or within yeah. American society, and that whatever happens you know in Africa or in other places doesn't really you know matter. They can sort of pretend that's not that's not happening there. It, yeah. It's not the case. Let's even look at immigration, for instance. Okay, um, and I put it in the book. You know, what's the direct immigration? You know, unsurprisingly, the direction of immigration is from poorer countries in the global south to richer countries in the global north. Mm-hmm. In racial terms, this means from black and brown nations to white majority nations. And there are a lot of people who'd like to move. And white Brits, for example, see on their TV screens, you know, boats of yeah. um, immigrants trying to get the country, migrants trying to get into the country from, you know, and, and these are people usually of a black and brown skin color. Yeah. And, you know, those kind of images in people's heads, you know, you should not be surprised uh taking into consideration how human beings operate, uh, that it will give the white Brits here a set of uh, better than it is. Yeah. yeah. A sense that, you know, well, you know, all these brown and black people, you know, it, it's them trying to come here. They want to come and live here. It's not us, you know, desperate to go and live in their countries. Mm-hmm. So obviously our societies are, you know, much better organized, are generally much better, probably civilizationally superior also, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. After all, if not for that, they wouldn't be so are desperate to leave their countries and come live here, you know. So yeah. you can't sort of discuss the race debate here in Britain and pretend that all this, you know, is not happening or or think that you can sort of, you know, exclude that from the mindset that will exist in the in, in the heads of, I'm not saying all, mm-hmm. but, you know, many white Brits and the kind of images and pictures in people's heads, you know. Yeah. And one thing I, f- I find interesting in relation to, as, as you say, the, the, the kind of images that uh, e- exist is you, you mentioned in terms of academia that a lot of um, students from the global south will want to go to Western universities because of mm-hmm. the sense of the status that they're world leading, the money that's poured into them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is a situation that, you know, given how in, entrenched these universities are as institutions, seen as world-leading institutions. Do you think this is an institution that can be changed, a, a, a situation that perhaps can be remedied in some way? And, and if so, how would that work? Uh, money is the only thing that could remedy um, that. Could remedy that. Yeah. So on the list, um, if, I, if I recall off the top of my head, of the top 50 universities in the world, I think 34 or 36... Um, in the QS ranking, which is a, a very respected um, uh, ranking. And interestingly, I also found a Chinese ranking, which had roughly identical um, results. So there's not just a question of, you know, Western bias, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think 34, 36 of the top 50 universities, the top 50 ranked universities in the world were in the West. Most of them in Britain and America. Uh, so what's interesting is where the rest of the universities in that top 50 ranking were. And the rest, so 14 or 16 of the top um, universities in that um, ranking were in East Asia. And they were in the richest East Asian countries, yeah. in Japan, Singapore, I think, and China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's no coincidence, again, as, as, as I made the argument, that the best non-Western universities, highest ranked non-Western universities in the world are in the richest mm-hmm. non-Western countries in the world because yeah. it takes money. To establish a world-class university, you need to have the you know the university in place, sort of you know physically. You need to have the labs, you need to have the the, the, the equipment, mm-hmm. you need to have you know the, the computers, you know the the, whole, the IT systems. Yeah, you need to have a, a whole 
army of people sort of working to make the university function well, then you need to have world-class academics also teaching at the universities who you would, you know, that, that's what you used to sort of sell it to the students, yeah? yeah? And say, oh, you know, professor such and such works here and, you know, such and such. And so how do you attract those world-class academics? You have to have money to attract them. Yeah. You have to be able to offer them the kind of pay and working conditions that would be globally competitive for them to decide not to go to Oxford or not to go to the University of Warwick or not yeah. to go to a university in the US or Canada, but to go to a university elsewhere. You know, if you can't offer that, they're not going to come. That, you know, that, that's the reality we live in. And so the only thing, if we're talking, and so there's, because there's a lot of complaints, you know, and I work, you know, I, I lecture at the University of Work, so, you know, and of York, sorry. So I, I, I work in academia and there's a lot of complaints about all, you know, um, knowledge production is centered in the West, that, you know, the West dominates global academia, et cetera. And I try to show that, yes, this is the case, but a, a large part of it is because of the huge resources that universities have here. Mm -hmm. And until there are universities elsewhere, like, for instance, those uh, those ones mentioned um, uh, in East Asia yeah. that can compete with um, Western universities. Western universities are going to continue dominating, and that's it. And the most you can do about it is complain or talk about, oh, you know, we need to decolonize the curriculum, and, and what does that boil down to? That really boils down to adding a few more black and brown authors on the reading list of, 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 of Oxford University and, and the University of Warwick, and you think that is going to change things? How is that going to change, you know, the status of universities worldwide? How is that going to help Kenyan universities? How is that going to help Pakistani universities? How is that going to help Indian universities? Mm. Of a lot. These are just, you know, symbolic stuff that people sort of obsess over. And, and sometimes I get why they obsess over it. Sometimes I think it's because perhaps it's the only thing they feel they can have some kind of an influence on, something, you know, they can't change. Um, whereas people, I think, maybe don't even want to face those material issues that exist because perhaps they just, you know, it's mind-boggling for them. Although, unfortunately, I think many people are not even that aware of the huge differences. And that's why I try to show, for instance, uh, that the, the annual budget of the University of Oxford in 2020-2021 was £2.9 billion, and that exceeded the education budget of Nigeria, the largest black nation on earth. Yeah. That is what we are dealing with here. You know, yeah. I don't think many people are aware of these kinds of figures and even much less affluent universities. So someone could say, oh, you know, but that's Oxford. But even much less affluent universities like University of York, where I work, in 2021 had a budget of around £421 million. Pounds. Yeah. And that was roughly equivalent to roughly a third of Nigeria's education budget for that year. That's one single university here in the UK and not one of the most affluent. Mm -hmm. So that's the world we live in. A, I'm not sure a lot of people really, you know, sort of know these figures. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps B, even if they knew them, they might not even know sort of like, you know, where to start. Sort of yeah. as in, you know. So let, let's forget about that and let, let's focus on, you know, um, uh, decolonizing, you know, curriculums and, and, you know, and a lot of high sounding, fancy sounding rhetoric, you know, which at the end of the day, you know, doesn't change the fundamentals of the equation. Yeah. Do you think um, some universities might at some point realize that just decolonizing particular subjects isn't necessarily going to help and that maybe actually helping by, you know, providing money to universities in, say, Nigeria or Pakistan mm. or, 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 or Sierra Leone or wherever might actually mm. have m more of an impact. Do you think that that's something we might ever see in the future? We should start a movement around that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. Yeah, I definitely like that. I'm going to, I'm probably going to repeat that. Yes, exactly. If you want to help 
then you know, um, uh, um, uh, think about you know uh, uh, providing funds on the to, like you say, a university you know in Syria alone or elsewhere, so they can recruit um, uh, academics. Doesn't have to be the most famous from the world, but so they can start at least from somewhere. That mm-hmm. would definitely be way more useful than you know continuing to maintain the the domination of 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 Western universities here, and you know doing a few symbolic things like oh yes, you know we've decolonized the curriculum because there are now more black and brown authors, you know, on the reading list. Yeah. So we now have all these diverse perspectives. And oh my God, look at, you know, what we're doing, you know. And um, uh, yes, your suggestion, I, I definitely much prefer it. And I'm almost, not almost, I'm certain uh, <laughs> universities in Syria alone or in Zambia or in Laos or in Vietnam would definitely appreciate that much more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I, I think it's it's something that you, you know, as, as you say, you see um, a lot with, with certain academics, the kind of like the moral arguments related to that kind of decolonization but it, it doesn't actually it doesn't really in in the way that really matters help does it it's it's something that is um uh to a degree somewhat performative do, do you think that that's an, another problem more broadly is that there's a lot of discussion when talking about um you know um just differences between the the, the global south and the and the west um differences in, in, in terms of opportunity, all that kind of thing. A lot of what is offered by institutions and governments and in some ca- in some cases individuals is often very performative rather than focusing on the the actual way that um you know issues like this could be, if not solved, at least alleviated to some degree, is in investing money or, or, or providing resources. Well, a couple of things here. Um, first of all, I, I, I hate to use this term because I don't like using terms which are sort of, you know, flogged and yeah, yeah. thrown and bandied around. But there definitely is a, a huge amount of virtue signaling mm-hmm. here, um, here in the UK. That's the term I said I, I try to use sparingly, but there definitely is. That's the, probably the best term that's been thought of on that. There's definitely a lot of that. And, you know, that stems our thoughts sometimes. You know, why is this? Why do the Brits sort of feel the need to virtue signal so much? And I think it comes from that, uh, remember I spoke at the beginning that there is that sort of broad commitment in British society here, and that too, you know, having a fairer place and, you know, more decent, more justice, people are treated equally, etc. So, so that commitment, generally speaking, is there at the back of people's minds. And people see that, okay, in practice, it's not really working like that. And then they sort of think, okay, so, you know, what can I do about this? And then, you know, some people will suggest some of these ideas like the decolonizing the curriculum, et cetera, and people latch onto that. Mm. And they say, ah, okay, so yeah, if we do this, it will make Britain a fairer society. Aha. So this is what we're going to do. And it's, of course, great if it doesn't cost anything. Yeah. It's, of course, great if it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost universities anything to put more black and brown people on the reading list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's wonderful. We're going to create this fairer, better society here without actually even having to spend any money. I mean, you know. If I was in their shoes, you know, I, I'd lock that too, mm-hmm. okay? And I'm not saying this cynically. I'm just saying it as, you know, we're all people here. I'm yeah. not saying I'm some kind of, you know, morally a person and the people I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so I would like that too, you know. I would definitely, you know, um, find more uncomfortable discussions which might, uh, and the implications of which might end up actually costing me something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, you know, those I would probably try to avoid. And generally speaking, even when, if we look at um, uh, group dynamics, you know, and, you know, the, the literature that exists on group dynamics and, you know, there's there's a whole sort of, you know, social psychology sphere which focuses on group dynamics and, you know, how do groups, you know, higher status groups tend to interact with lower status groups and how do, you know, mm. stronger groups tend to interact with lower groups. 
And, and, and the general consensus there is that, you know, the, the higher status groups, the groups that have more power, usually prefer discussing anything apart from the things that actually decide the power differentials between them and the other groups. Yeah, That's absolutely. the instinctive preference. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about everything. And I'm not saying this is something done consciously. This mm -hmm. is, you know, like I said, you know, this is psychological literature. This is, these are instincts people have. I'm not saying people sit down and think, ah, okay. So, you, you know, and what would really change here? Yeah, aha, it would really change things if other universities had more resources. So let's make sure we don't talk about that, but talk about it. I'm not saying that's the way it works. Yeah, yeah. There are instincts that, you know, that, that simply come to people, you know. And so the higher status, more powerful groups always prefer to discuss everything apart from the things that actually decide the power differentials between them and the other groups. Any other thing they are very happy to talk about, and they can discuss that, you know, from today till tomorrow. Let's have endless debate about it <laughs> and so i think so i think a lot of it you know stems from this so that virtue signaling and that you know these performative actions and i'm not one of those who would say you know they are being done you know sort of completely cynically and <laughs> um, i think a lot of the people doing them sort of you know you know they are offered such a solution somebody offers such a solution and these can often be people who come from the groups that are the less powerful groups so the lower status groups yeah. for instance from you know it can be a black person or a brown person that brings up the decolonize, let's decolonize the curriculum argument, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the university authorities or the white folk in front of, uh, in charge of universities, you know, they will immediately jump on that and say, oh, okay, great idea. Like I said, it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, so come on. Why wouldn't we want to jump on this bandwagon? And, you know, and that's how it just rolls. Mm. And then we have, and then there will be those who will be even opposed to that. So maybe from like a conservative point of view. Uh, who will say, oh, you know, why should we decolonize you? Why should we have more, you know, black and brown faces on the reading list? You know, oh, that's political correctness. You know, oh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. not bad. And then we start having all this nonsensical debates, you know, over and over, you know, back and forth, back and forth, when the core of the problem is not even being addressed. Yeah. It's a self-perpetuating dynamic of Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, In, in terms of uh, something that I, I wonder whether you think might be, self-perpetuating is you mentioned um in in the chapter discussing the media and discussing western media mm -hmm. and the experiences of a, a journalist that you um spoke to who you refer to mm -hmm. as um x that um that that journalist had had problems with um changing the narrative in the media referring to africa as if it was just a country or calling television personalities like a a, a nigerian or, or kenyan oprah oprah yeah oprah. to what extent do you feel that the media has almost like a, a a self-fulfilling prophecy element to it that journalists are given particular lines that they feel that they have to um trot out that they then present to the public perhaps they hear them fed back um uh, from the public via vox pops or things like that and so they think oh well this is what the the, the public thinks we can't make these kind of um distinguishes um b b between different groups and, d and different people so it's almost like this continual snake of it feeding back into itself that the media has a, a um an idea of what the public thinks and the ideas that the, uh, the public have about particular things and so it projects those ideas back not realizing that they're sort of self-perpetuating it by continuing to um you know use the sort of like e examples um, that I, I provided that obviously aren't accurate, but they think that the the public will understand or be able to um, be a, be able to relate 
Yeah, I think um, I, I can't even understand why people do it. And I hope yeah. that um, conversation which I had in the media, I mean, with, with that person I mean, from the media sort of showed that. And, you know, I myself have worked I mean, for a newspaper, you know, in Poland. And, you know, so I, I've seen how it works. So, you know, I mean, there's an editor there. And the editor saying, you know, if it's a newspaper or, you know, whether it's a TV, you know, so there's an editor there. And then you, you have this meeting, um, you know, at the beginning of the week. And, you know, the question is thrown out, okay, you know, what news do we cover here? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, journalist X will say, oh, you know, we should cover such and such story. This is, you know, this really I mean, seems to be important, et cetera. Everybody there, you know, throws their ideas. And at the end of the day, the editor will make some calls and say, okay, we should cover this story, this story, this story, that story. And how do they make those calls? They make those based on the stories they think would interest their audience. Yeah. Okay. So if it's the Wall Street Journal, they're obviously going to try to go for stories, you know, connected strongly with business and, 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 and things like that. And um, if it's, you know, the New York Times, they might decide to cover a story, you know, connected more with politics or with culture, or with art or something like that. So they all sort of, all the editors know their audience or I think they know their audience. Very often they do know their audience quite well. And the question is, okay, what will my audience be interested in? So that's the first question. Then the second question is, okay, how do we cover the story? And then when you get to the, how do we cover the story? That's where, you know, the editors will come in and that's where you have the mental shortcuts come in. So, okay, how do we write a story on major Western media acts about a Nigerian presenter that would actually be covered in a way that would connect to our audiences, say, here in Britain, yeah. here in America? And they say, well, you know, our audiences here in Britain or in America probably don't know anything about Nigerian TV. They probably don't know any Nigerian personalities, but they do know Oprah. Yeah. So probably the best way to talk about that Nigerian presenter there is that that person is the Nigerian Oprah. Ah, that's a shortcut. That's something our British audience here can relate to. Like, ah, okay, I get it. Nigerian Oprah makes sense. Yeah. You know. And, you know, excuse me. And so that's the way it will go. That's the way the story will be covered. Because at the end of the day, the editors, the people in the media, they A, want their stories to be read or listened to, mm -hmm. and B, would like those stories to, you know, resonate and, you know, be talked about, etc. because that's what their bosses are going to judge them on. So the question then becomes, okay, fine, we know this is how it works. How then do we get to a place where you don't have to introduce a Nigerian presenter as the Nigerian opera yeah. to, get, um, uh, to be able to get traction? And then we now get into the question of, okay, so who has the resources to build global media? Media that actually have um, audiences in all parts of the world. So first of all, today, it's only Western media that can actually be described as global media. It's only the likes of the BBC, Sky News, etc., that have audiences all over the world. Mm -hmm. So say for a Nigerian TV station to do this, they'd need to have the resources to be able to actually build a global media empire. I discussed there how um, uh, the um, I mean, the BBC, I think, had a revenue of five billion pounds, or so it was in 2021. And um, South African Broadcasting Corporation, which is probably the richest I mean, media house in the whole of Africa, had a revenue five times, five percent that amount. Mm -hmm. So obviously, resources to even try to start to compete with yeah. the global media. That's one. Second, we now come to the question of the hierarchy of nations. Okay, so why is it that a British person here has heard of Oprah Winfrey, but hasn't heard of any presenter in Nigeria? Mm -hmm. There's the reason for that. Yeah. A, because Oprah Winfrey operates in America. America is a high status country, it's a high status society. It is the most high status country in the world. It is the country everybody looks to. 
So if you are famous in America, you are famous everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so clearly you want to have a nation that is a, a high nation, an influential nation that other people are going to be looking and interested in finding out who are the top presenters in your nation. So that's where it starts from. That's yeah. why everybody knows Oprah because she operates in America. Um, so yes, so there's the, the, there's the level of um, which media have the resources to be global media, yeah, to be the yeah. media that get to talk about people in other countries and are watched by people from around the world. Uh, and A, today it's mostly Western media. As I give examples, the Al Jazeera is the only exception, mm -hmm. but you know they've been faltering in recent years. And yeah. that, the only reason why Al Jazeera was even able to emerge and start to compete with the likes of BBC for some audiences is because they had the resources to do that. Yeah, Because they were funded by the Qatari royal which owns it. Mm -hmm. And so they got billions to build state-of-the-art studios to often employ the journalists from the West here, from the um, growing journalists from BBCs and, uh, and the other places to come work for them and run a top-notch um, top television operation. Mm. So there again, we get back into the issue of resources. So there's that. And then, like I say, there's the hierarchy of nations thing. At the end of the day, the world is interested in the nations that are doing the best. Mm. Nations that have the most wealth, the nations that are the most successful, those are the nations that people look up to. That's the reason people look up to America, not just because it's called the United States of America, yeah. but because it's the richest country in the world and the most powerful country in the world. That's why people are interested mm. in who is on TV shows in America. There's no other logical reason for them to be interested. There's no logical reason for a Kenyan to be interested in who Jay Leno is. Why, for, for God's sake? Yeah. He's not talking about your reality. Yeah. He doesn't know anything about your life as a Kenyan, mm. you see. But will an American be interested in a Kenyan and uh, in a Kenyan and a stand-up comic? Doubtful, mm. you know. So we get back to these things, and that's why what I try to show in the book is sort of you know the system we are living living in, and I don't mean in system like oh my god, you know, there's twelve people who sat down and thought about how to design this, and you know, they put this in place, and oh my god, we're not living in this kind of matrix, <laughs> sort of, and, yeah. uh, which has been constructed by some. I don't mean system in that sense. You know, mm -hmm. these are things you know, that emerge as almost a logical consequence of the capitalist system we live in. Yeah. yeah. But of course, there was the whole, you know, colonialism and, and slavery and all that. Of course, that was there. But generally speaking, this is a system that has emerged, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and this is how it works. And until we sort of, you know, face up to the fact that, look, this is how it works. It tends to be nations where wealth is. It tends to be groups that have that wealth, that are able to create this global media, have these best universities in the world, technology also I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. have the best you know, technology um, firms in the world where all the brains from around the world come to work, yeah? yeah. And, and, and they control everything. So all the, many of these huge, biggest um, technology companies are located in the US. That's also not a coincidence, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it tends to be that wealth that attracts all this. And then the wealth attracts all this prestige and status, and then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle which, you know, is simply built and expanded upon. And you can't sit down there and say, well, you know, this isn't the way it should be and expect that that's, that's going to change anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we know this isn't the way it should be, you know. Whatever the way it should be is, that's a moral dis discussion. And, but that's not going to change anything. Mm. Neither is it going to change anything if we keep saying, ah, but, you know, these people, they only have all this money because of colonialism and slavery. Okay, fine. Uh, what next? Yeah. Let's even say we win that argument. 
let people say all the white people in Britain come up tomorrow and say, oh, actually, we only have what we have thanks to colonialism and slavery. Okay, what next? How does that change the lives of 500 million people in Africa who live on less than $2 a day? Yeah. The fact that the British public acknowledges this. That thing of itself is not going to win anything. Mm. At the most, you know, those who have, who have been at the forefront of the debate here will feel like moral victors. Okay, what next? We're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been um, great to have the chance um, to speak to you, Remy, but I do have one final question. For um, people reading the book, what one thing, people who are going to read the book, what one thing would you most like them to take away from reading the book? So um, uh, what I'd like people to take from the book is a realisation of just how important wealth is in shaping the dynamics between individuals in societies and between groups and nations around the world, how much it affects the everyday interaction between groups, individuals, and between nations in the world, how much it affects the level of fairness we have in the world, and generally speaking, in the way the world works. And then building on that, I'd love if they could take even a few minutes to reflect on what can be done to change things, knowing what is at the root of most of the dynamics running the world. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure many people will take that from the book. Thank you once again uh, for taking the time to speak to me, um, Remy. If people want to buy a copy of the book, which I certainly encourage them to do, where should they go to, to buy a copy of the book? And if people want to find out more about you and other things that you're, you're working on and doing, where should they go to, to find out more about you? Thank you. So I think um, the first call, the easiest call is probably always Amazon. The book is available. Um, uh, will be available from the 20th of April. So pre-orders are already available on Amazon. Um, and the book will be fully available from the 20th of April and will also be available in ebook and in audiobook form from the 20th of April. If people want to find out about me, um, they can always, um, uh, I'd love for them to um, follow me on Twitter at Remy Adekoya1. That's where I tend to. Uh, that's where I tend to communicate and, uh, the most. And of course, they can also and uh, read up on me on my University of York and my webpage. Fantastic! Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Okay, thank you very much. Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.